Welcome to the Business of Security Podcast, episode number four. Your host is Ron Warner. Today, he'll be talking with Adam Shostak, author and president of Shostak and Associates. Now, let's get to it. the industry need to start talking about that we're not doing today. Information technology is built on a horrible foundation. If we could sort of redo and start from the beginning, we would be so much better off. If you don't invest in it and keep it running, it will blow up. We also have to be able to go in with solutions, not just problems. We have a long way to go if we're going to win this fight. But at the end of the day, educated people are really the best countermeasure against all the threats, the threats, the threats. Welcome to the Business of Security podcast. I'm your host, Ron Werner. With me today is my guest, Mr. Adam Shostak. Adam is a consultant, entrepreneur, technologist, author, and game designer. Adam is the author of Threat Modeling, Designing for Security, and the co-author of The New School of Information Security. Adam, welcome to the podcast. Pleasure to be here with you, Ron. Adam, you are a business executive who owns your own company. Prior to recording, we were talking about the experiences you've had in owning your own company and balancing security and executive decisions. Maybe if we could start and you can talk to us about your experiences with security as a business leader. Absolutely. You know, before I founded Showstack and Associates, I was building what we hoped was going to be a venture-backed startup. And I hired people, I wrote their job descriptions, I made payroll, I dealt with unemployment insurance, and I had to make the decision between what fraction of our budget do we spend on the security of the product we're building, the marketing of it, the sales, the graphic design, all of those strategic questions of asset allocation were on my shoulders. And that gives me a degree of sympathy for the business executive, for your listener here today, because I've been there and I've had this tension between I am a security professional, I've been doing it for 25 years, you can read my bio on the site, and I had to at times say, we're going to spend that money on marketing, not on product security. Because if we don't sell the product, it can be the most secure thing in the world. And today it is the most secure thing in the world because it doesn't have any interesting data in it because we don't have customers yet. (laughs) That's one way to address the security. But no, the idea is to have your customers and to develop that right balance, understanding threats and risks to the business. And you are an expert in threat modeling. You recently gave a talk on threat modeling at Black Hat, and in that talk, you asked the question, what's changing in threat modeling? What was your answer? What is your answer? What do businesses need to understand about threat modeling? So let me take those in backwards order. Perfect. What businesses need to understand about threat modeling is that it is a key technique to make sure your security program is structured, systematic, and comprehensive. If you start your security work at compliance, at something other than the question of what can go wrong, you don't know how to make sure that your security covers all of the right things. Threat modeling, four questions, just quickly. What are we working on? What can go wrong? What are we going to do about it? Did we do a good job? With that background, that threat modeling is the cornerstone of a strategic security program, 
what's new is that we've talked about threat modeling entire systems. What are we working on? Here's this big project. Let's think about it overall. And that's been coming into increasing conflict with the agile way people build systems. A lot of threat modeling remains the same, but you work it in smaller pieces that align with the agile development, with the continuous integration, with the DevOps that people are doing. And so explaining how that worked was one big piece of my talk. There's a piece about threat modeling the Internet of Things. And then there were a bunch of examples of the way in which threats have evolved. Details that are new and different. I'll give you an example. Yes, please. There's a threat that we think about a lot, which is spoofing, pretending to be someone or something you're not. One of the ways we answer that is via biometrics, evidence of who you are. There's a whole emergent field called voice cloning. And voice cloning lets them put actors' voices into new movies when the actor isn't around anymore. It allows you to give a grandchild a teddy bear that sounds like grandpa. It's cool stuff. And it really breaks our expectations as to how biometrics can protect our systems. And so there were a lot of those sorts of details about here's a new version of this attack. Another thing that's new, the revolution in mobile phones is driving sensor quality up and costs down. So sensors are now in everything. There's information disclosure threats. There's privacy threats because of those high quality sensors. And we need to integrate that into how we threat model. And you bring up a great point on how typical technology can be used for both good and evil purposes and way to understand that and whether the benefits outweigh the costs is through threat modeling. Is Mm -hmm. there a right way to threat model a system or an organization? And I know that's a loaded question. (laughs) (laughs) The right way is the way that works for you. Threat modeling is as big as programming. In programming, we have different languages, we have different runtime environments, we have different paradigms, we have different ways of doing it. Threat modeling is the same. There are different ways you can express the answer to what are we working on. You can scope that differently. Is what are we working on, say, all of Gmail, or is it the new Gmail filtering language? Or is it this one verb in the filtering language? In today's Agile world, it's this one verb. Different ways to approach what are we working on, different ways to answer the question, what can go wrong? There's a mnemonic stride. There are kill chains. There are attack trees. All of these different building blocks allow us to construct an approach to threat modeling that fits our development environment, that fits the things we're delivering, and that works for us. And so the key question that an executive should be asking is, are my people threat modeling and believing it helps them do their jobs better, deliver a better product faster, higher levels of security, less rework, If so, that's a great threat modeling process, and you can improve that process the way you'd improve any other process that you have. 
How do you know your threat modeling is actually effective? You mentioned about employees' threat modeling. How will they know, how will management and executives know that threat modeling is performing the duties that it needs to? Sometimes it's hard to measure. We're more secure. How do you really know that? Anytime you start to pick up a new skill, a new set of things that your organization does, there's a process of developing muscle around it, learning the skills and learning any new skill, introducing anything new into your engineering work takes some time. It takes some dedication. It takes leadership. And the way to know whether or not it's working is, and I say this with a little bit of irony, but not too much, if your engineers insist that it's part of the development work that can't be cut, then it's working. And if your engineers are looking to save time and it's the first thing to go, then it's probably not working. The people we work with in developing products and developing services have a tremendous degree of professional pride in what they deliver. Nobody wants to deliver sloppy work. And so we can get into, I'm keeping this a little bit high level for an executive audience, but the simple truth is you ought to be able to tell whether or not your engineers are happy doing a given piece of work. And if they're happy doing it, it probably means they think it's working and they think it's important. And it's overall part of their culture, if you will, as to how do they develop. It's part of their mindset on what do they do. It's just included. It's not an add-on, but it's a building block. Today, you wouldn't ship code without unit tests. Exactly. You wouldn't ship code without the ability to roll back a change. Right, And your developers will fight for those things if they don't have them, or they'll find a job where they have them, frankly. And I think threat modeling is transitioning from this thing which five years ago, ten years ago, was scary, it was waterfall-y, to something that is a point of professional pride that people believe they ought to do as part of delivering a great product to their customers. Well said. In your book, you mentioned, and in your talks, you've mentioned this as well, the idea of thinking like an adversary, an attacker. Mm -hmm. Is that beneficial to organizations or no? So that's an interesting way to phrase the question. When people tell me to think like an attacker, I ask them to think like a professional chef. And the reason I ask them to do that is because thinking like an attacker is really hard. What do your engineers know better than anything else? They know the product they're building. That's why we start threat modeling there. The question of what can go wrong can be hard to answer. That's why we've got frameworks to help us answer it. Thinking like an attacker is a really, really challenging step. It's harder than other ways of doing it. And so I recommend against it. There's a, there's a fellow named Pete Chestnut. When people say to Pete, think like an attacker, he says, think like a developer, which I, which I think is beautiful. And when I think like a developer, what I say is, what is the thing that is accessible to me with the skills and knowledge that I have today? 
thinking like an attacker, to go back to your explicit question, and I said it was an interesting phrase, you said, is it beneficial? Sure, it's beneficial. There are a lot of things that are potentially beneficial. Is it worth the cost, is the way I like to rephrase that question. Good point. And so it is rarely worth the cost. It is hard to do well. It is easy to mess up. And I don't put it as part of the way I encourage people to threat model. I see it also can lead to overconfidence. I'm thinking like an attacker. I'm sure this is the way I will be attacked. Mm -hmm. It's easy to get wrong. And why are you doing something that is easy to get wrong if you can avoid it? Right. If we were at the Toyota manufacturing plant and we had an assembly step that we kept getting wrong, we would pull the rope, we would redesign that step, we would reduce the odds of error so that we can get our job done right the first time. I'm going to segue to a question I didn't put on your list, but I'm really curious. Is the correlation between threat modeling and red teaming or pen testing? Pen testing is really hot in cybersecurity. Everyone wants a pen test done on their product. Isn't that along the lines of thinking like an attacker? How do they work well together or do they not? So penetration testing or red teaming is like building an airplane Taking off and seeing if any parts fall off. While you're flying. Yeah, while you're running down the runway, maybe. (laughs) And that can be a useful thing, right? There's a test flight for a new airplane. But it's important that we engineer the airplane from the start to deal with the conditions that we can predict it will have to encounter. Threat modeling is the way we ensure that the airplane deals with the security conditions that it needs to encounter. Penetration testing is taking off and flying around the airfield once, and red teaming is flying it into a storm. All three are valuable things to do, and I know which order I'd suggest you do them in. And just to clarify, what is the order? Threat modeling first, then penetration testing. And let me distinguish for the audience because they may not be familiar with the distinction. Penetration testing tends to be scoped. It tends to be constrained. It says, we would like, we're rolling out this new CRM platform. We'd like you to poke at it. And we'd like you to poke at it between seven at night and four in the morning so that it doesn't bother our real customers. Red teaming, once your pen tests are coming back well, red teaming says, we'd like you to steal these secrets from our business. Come back in a month or two. It takes away a lot of the artificial constraints. It takes away a lot of the rules. And that can be tremendously useful once you have a good degree of confidence that your defenses are going to work in those circumstances. Or if you just don't know, but let me save you a little bit of money and tell you if you haven't done security engineering work and a red team comes at you, they're going to win. So you might want to start a little bit smaller, or you might want to use that as a motivator, right? You might want to say, hey, our investment in security has been low. Let's see how bad it is. Let's do an unconstrained red team exercise. And the word unconstrained is really important and really scary. It's really a building approach, starting with the threat modeling. Just like with airplanes, they don't just start building it on the runway. They build it on the computer first and use lots of simulators on it and can test it in a fabricated environment. It sounds like that should be an approach we could look at as well for our development. 
Let's take a short break and hear a success story from our sponsor, TrustMap, the business management system for security leaders. Hey, this is Chad Beckman. I just want to quickly introduce uh, Pam Bro. Pam, welcome. Thank you. Pam, tell us a little bit about your background and what you're doing with the Roundtable Network. Yeah, so, well, first, thanks for having me. I, um, my background is I've been in cybersecurity for uh, 18, 19 years now, which is a long time for this um, sector. And um, I've primarily been, during that time, serving the, the CISO community. You know, so I have a really rich network of Fortune 1000 CISOs. And I just launched my third services business last year. And it's really to address a market need that the CISOs have around understanding which technologies to look at to fight the war. There's thousands of cybersecurity vendors and they're getting hundreds of unsolicited uh, calls every week. And if they actually ferreted through uh, which vendors to look at, it would be a full-time job. So I do that for them, and I do that in a very specific way by uh, identifying four or five products each quarter that I introduce to them in a one-on-one meeting. So I meet with each of my Fortune 50, Fortune 500 executives, I have 50 of them, uh, for one hour each quarter to present those products. And they love it, um, and it helps them understand which products are worthy and deserve to be above the noise. Um, there's a little bit more to it. I do other services for them, but that's the centerpiece. Very cool. So you're helping to really uh, sort through the noise, as it were. That's a very big topic now amongst the CISO community, particularly with all the vendors uh, that uh, sometimes have great solutions and other times they have a different spin on an old idea. Uh, so tell us a little bit about uh, the success of your program. Uh, I, I, you know, candidly, I'm responsible for TrustMap and we've worked together, but um, what kind of success have you seen and and what's the most successful product out of your program today? You know, obviously I have two two customers in a sense, right? My primary client is my CISOs, the 50 Fortune 500 CISOs that I serve. And I do not take money uh, from the vendors. I really am relying on bringing value to the and when I do, I monetize in that way. So every quarter I'm reinventing myself. So every quarter I really do have to find four or five products or services, it can be a service as well, that hit a pain point. Because I'm having 50 one-on-one conversations every single quarter with these executives, it's fairly easy for me to recognize a product that would meet a need. Um, And then, of course, I go through a a very rigorous process of of vetting that solution to make sure that they can deliver and deliver at scale because I don't want my executives to be the um, guinea pig, so to speak. The process is a a long one around vetting. And then as far as successful products, I I have to say that TrustMap's been my most successful vendor. And how do I measure success? How many of my 50 Fortune 500 CISOs said, I've got to see this product, I have this problem to solve? Over 30, so more than half of my network said, you know, you had me at hello, actually. (laughs) I do the presentation, I do a short five to seven minute presentation on each of my vendors each quarter. And I usually don't get all the way through the presentation on TrustMap because they resonate so well with the problem that you solve, which is, you know, they need to measure their program and show progress to the executive team and the board. And they're doing this right now manually. And so to automate that 
and make it put more rigor and consistency behind it is crucial. Actually, it's crucial to their success and their role. You know, a lot of CISOs these days, um, you know, their jobs are on the line and they have to show what they're doing um, to their peers, to their leadership team and to the board. That's wonderful. Thanks for that summary, Pam. I really appreciate it. Uh, if the CISOs want to get a hold of you, uh, or perhaps some innovative vendors out there, what's the best way for them to get in contact? I'll just suggest that they go to my website. Um, obviously, it's really easy to get a hold of me from there. My website is theroundtablenetwork.com, and you should be able to find me. Great. So for everybody, that was theroundtablenetwork.com. Pam, thank you very much for taking time to talk about your program and the success that TrustMap has had. I appreciate it. Thanks for inviting me. Remember, listeners of the podcast can schedule a free trial of TrustMap at trustmap.com slash business. Now let's get back to the show. Getting going with threat modeling is not that difficult. You know, the reason I wrote a book on it is because I have been threat modeling for 20, 25 years in fairly structured ways, and I have developed my skills in this area because they are the highest payoff thing that I do when I do security work. The ROI on threat modeling is really amazing, and that's why I advocate for it. That's why I help businesses do it. That's why... Well, as a business leader yourself, you do that now as part of being a business executive, which mm-hmm. creates efficiencies, saves money, saves time, and improves security overall. It's almost like anything else you build security in. If you build it in early, it's so much less expensive. Pay me now or pay me later. And you know, it makes your product shipping easier to think about security at the start because today, with the PCI credit card security standard, with the new European privacy rules, there are requirements that you do this security analysis work. And if you're doing it at the end, you end up in a very uncomfortable room where people say, we have these problems. We didn't know about them. Do we push this out the door knowing that? Well, wouldn't it be nice to not be in that room, but much more important than not being in that room wouldn't it be nice to not have to spend the money to take the code you've written, throw it away, and replace it with new code? Getting security into your design dramatically cuts the odds that you will need to do a rewrite. It cuts the odds that you will miss a deadline. It has a very crisp return on investment as security becomes an important part of what a product needs in the marketplace in 2018 and going forward. Adam, you have a background in development and you mentioned the term DevOps and so AppSec, DevOps, DevSecOps is now a thing. What do business leaders need to understand about secure development? How can a security person, a security role work better with developers and development teams and vice versa? Security for a long time has been an operational role. We deployed firewalls to protect insecure systems from the internet. Over the last almost 20 years, 
Microsoft has been building security into their products using an application security process that they call the secure development lifecycle. And I joined the secure development lifecycle team at Microsoft in 2006. It was already up and running. And they handed me the threat modeling portfolio while I was there, along with other things. What business leaders need to understand is that having done this for 20 years, the things which were complicated or rocket science in 2002 and 2005 and 2008 are now prescribed, understandable activities that they need to engage in. The Federal Trade Commission has a program called Start With Security. If you are developing software and you don't have a security function within someone whose job is application security, in that software team, you're doing something wrong. And I'm going to go further. It's 2018. Every company is now a software development company. In 2016, the CEO of GE said, if you join the company today, you will learn to program. That's a massive statement. That's an important statement. And so your listeners are building software. Maybe you're building it outsourced. Maybe you think of it as, oh, it's just web stuff or it's just Salesforce apps, apps, web applications. You're building software today. You need to be securing that software. And when I say need to be, what I mean by that is there are attackers who will jump on it. There are regulators who will punish you for ignoring this. If you haven't started an application security program by now, you're a little bit behind the times. And there are plenty of resources available for that as well. And what I found is sometimes you can find a developer who's already has that good interest or mindset for security and train that person to be your inside person on the development team rather than an external coming from the outside of security and security telling us what to do. No, it's the developers telling themselves what to do. You know, the, the application security space is an interesting one because it is a different skill set. It is integrating with a different set of activities. We're no longer taking an operating system and configuring our golden build and deploying it and managing it. Well, we're still doing those things, but we're doing it in conjunction with these applications, or we're just deploying our applications in a serverless way where some other company controls everything underneath, manages all that on our behalf so that we can do the piece that really matters to our business. We focus on our core needs, our core competencies, let somebody else do some of that system admin work. And so, yes, bringing somebody, finding someone with, a, with an interest inside your organization is great. There are small consultancies, there are large consultancies, there are conferences, there are books. There's, there's lots of ways to get started in application security today. And it really just takes that little bit of a push from within the business and then within the development community itself to realize that that's what is required. 
what I've noticed within academia is that they don't always teach secure development. It's one of those things that, okay, what do I not teach if I'm going to talk about security? But it's now becoming <laughs> injected uh, into the culture of developers. And they realize, hey, we don't want anyone messing with our code. We better develop it securely to defeat against common types of attacks. You know, I, I am so glad that you answered the question of why is security not part of the curriculum? Because in security, so many people will say, we should add security to the curriculum. Well, hang on, there's already 120 or however many hours worth of coursework you need to take in the curriculum. We can't just add another thing. We have to take something out. We have to make room for this. The same thing applies to adding security to your development activity. You have to be willing to take something out, and that something you take out might be rework at the end. It might be emergency reaction to the discovery of a vulnerability. It might be uncertainty. It doesn't need to be you need to sacrifice features. It may be that you can sacrifice some of that uncertainty and chaos and use that money to pay for proactive and cost-effective security. Whole idea of start with security, or build security, and which as part of Microsoft is part of their culture. And it's now seen in their products, whether yep. folks are a fan of Microsoft or not, you have to admit it's, yeah, they definitely have gotten to be very systematic with their and there's security. Been a, there's been a diaspora. The, the people who worked at Microsoft when I joined that team's turned over. Those people have gone out into the wider world mm -hmm. and brought the practices that worked with them. They've adapted them to new companies. They've adapted them to open source. They've adapted them to fast ship cycles, which, you know, Windows was not on a fast ship cycle when I helped them threat model. So this stuff is doable. So there's been a really good downhill effect yeah. Is that not only now is Microsoft, but it's built into so many organizations to Atomus. We're beginning to get close to finishing time, though. I want to get from you your top three things business leaders need to know. So you have a, a new leader. They are now responsible for securing their IT infrastructure and applications. What do they need to start with? So that's a really big question. The first thing they need to know is security is no longer an afterthought. It's got to be built in, and the way to build it in is by threat modeling. The second thing they need to know is the world has moved to agile, and in security, a lot of people are concerned by this. Agility is a huge win for security. I go to companies and I do some work for some of them and they have a change window for their key servers that's every three months. No one is allowed to change anything for 90 days. If there's a critical patch out there tomorrow, 89 days later, it's going to get in. The agile world, the continuous deployment world says we cannot live with a server that is so fragile that it can only be touched every 90 days. We need to build resilience into our systems and that building in of resilience adds security. The third thing 
that I would say is your people want to do the right thing, help them do so. It's easy to be contemptuous of the end user. Oh, people will just click on anything. We can fish them. Clicking on links is a big part of how most people get their job done. Telling them to study their links, to slow down before they click on that link, isn't going to work. You should make sure they can click on that link securely. That the things that happen when they click on a link don't break things for them. Maybe that means getting them a password manager to resist phishing. One that will check the URL carefully before putting a password into it. Maybe it involves a link rewriter in your email system so that the links go through a URL firewall. Saying, oh, people will do, quote, and I'm making little air quotes here, dumb things, and so, air quotes, we're screwed, doesn't help anyone. Believe that your people want to do the right thing, help them do it. If you don't believe that your people want to do the right thing, why are they working there? Why are you paying them? Um, and there are places where that's part of the answer is our employees will do the wrong thing. Um, you need to isolate. For example, maybe you have, but maybe you have low skill, low pay workers with high turnover in part of your business. Design that part of the business so that those people can't do the wrong thing. You know, make it safe for them to use the systems that they're going to use and don't give them access to the whole of the corporate network. So the top three, threat model, the world is agile, enable your people to do the right thing. You covered some great material in our conversation today, and I appreciate you taking some time to chat with me and share your knowledge with our business of security listeners. So thank you, Adam, for sharing your knowledge with us today. I recommend our listeners go to adam.showstack.org to learn more about Adam, read his articles, his blogs. He puts a lot of his talks readily available. It's on one of my recommended reading lists. This concludes the Business of Security podcast. My guest has been Adam Showstack. Thank you, listeners, for joining me today. Please come back for more thought-provoking conversations from security leaders. Thanks for listening to the Business of Security podcast. A special thanks to today's guest, Adam Showstack. Our host today was Ron Warner. Connect with Ron on LinkedIn and learn more about his company, RWX Security Solutions, online at rwxsecurity.com. Our next podcast episode features Ben Rothke, Senior Security Consultant at Netitude. You've been listening to the Business of Security podcast, and that's a wrap.